The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Today we'll be discussing the stark reality of state capture and the harsh fate facing whistleblowers in South Africa. Joining me shortly is Ethel Williams. Mr. Williams worked for Bain South Africa, U.S.-based management consultancy, sporadically between 1995 and 2019 as a senior partner. The company allegedly held a string of meetings with former President Zuma to make strategic government appointments. In his testimony at the Zonda Commission earlier this year, Mr. Williams implicated a number of people he claims worked with Zuma as they plotted how to manipulate government systems. Mr. Williams reportedly left South Africa on the 1st of November of this year, accusing the authorities of choosing not to protect whistleblowers. We're going to be discussing this and a lot more um, in a couple of minutes. Ethel, a very warm welcome to the show. Good morning, Chad. Ethel, it's always heartbreaking to have to speak to somebody who's not in close proximity, a loyal, patriotic South African who's no longer in South Africa as a direct consequence of fraud and corruption that has captured our country the past few decades. What led you, in essence, to make the decision to leave South Africa? We know there's been assassinations. We know that life is not easy for a whistleblower. But what happened to make you decide on this drastic course of action? Chad, I, I agree. It is a sad, tragic outcome, really, for any citizen to feel that they their lives are in danger or they don't belong in the country of their birth. Um, more so for me and other whistleblowers who have stood up at great personal cost to act in the interest of our country. Um, to, to your specific question, Chad, you know, the day I testified, um, the second day of my testimony in March of this year, I got a call from an international NGO who deals with whistleblowers, um, and they had been advising me um, leading up to my testimony. And they said to me, based on my testimony of implicating 39 powerful parties um, and showing how they were connected. Um, on that very day, on the 24th of March, um, I was advised to leave the country for my safety because because they work around the world and see how these things go. Um, their worry was, just given the patterns they've observed, that I would be in danger. And so that was in March already. Um, and so that came as a shock to me because I never expected I'd be in physical danger for what I was doing. But then, you know, for, for a few months, I then lived in fear and never knew whether the, any threat was going to be real because I never had a gun put to my head. Um, but then when Babita Diokaran was, was assassinated in August, um, I think that's when it came, hit home for me that this danger is real, that there are people really who would want to silence whistleblowers and go to that extreme. Um, and so that's when I began thinking about whether I should I shouldn't do that. Um, and then, you know, I, I got more information from trusted allies. I got information from senior senior government officials or former government officials who said to me that they they understand that there's a coordinated effort to silence me and that I am in the crosshairs of those who want to silence me. And so, so Chad, it was less about a gun being held to my head or a direct death threat, but all of these allies and informed people and looking at the situation where our government – was offering no protection um, and just leaving leaving me exposed that I decided for my for my safety to leave, not to be silent, Chad, importantly, but just to put some space between myself and those who would want to silence me. 
Ethel, the reality is that South Africa has a very fast-moving media cycle. And so much is happening, especially when it comes to fraud, corruption, tender manipulation, state capture, that the stories are ever-evolving and people tend to forget. If we go back to 2010, to the building of the stadium, um, the, the Umbombela Stadium was accused of being part of a fraudulent tender. And the whistleblower there was a local SACP member who was assassinated. And it didn't make the kind of news one would have expected. And we haven't seen the resulting arrest and convictions. That is an example of one in most probably a few thousand. Because whistleblowers aren't necessarily just those that are blowing the whistle on fraud, corruption, state capture, but even those that are blowing the whistle on other common type crimes, be it human trafficking, be it taxi assassinations, be it um, cash in transit heists. And these people are being taken out wholesale. South Africa has a massive rate of assassinations that go unreported. They're referred to as murders, but we know there's even a hostel in KwaZulu-Natal, Amlazi, um, called Leblins, which is renowned for producing some of South Africa's most notorious assassins. It's a job. We see it every election cycle where um, rival candidates get taken out by these groups of assassins. So it's it's very just and it's very concerning um, that that this is happening. Somehow, without the media keeping a focus on assassinations, not having a barometer, it seems like these people are getting away. Am I correct that that's the assumption that most people would have? I absolutely agree um, with that entire description you gave, Chad, of both um, it being that whistleblowers are not just the ones who we've come to read about in the papers, um, you know, because lately it's been quite fashionable to talk about whistleblowers, particularly state capture whistleblowers. But I think I think the far majority, by far the majority, we never hear about. And like you say, those, those are the ones blowing the whistle in their companies when they see fraud or blowing the whistle at the local municipalities when they see, when they see corruption. Um, I think even um, you mentioned um, human trafficking, but even sexual harassment, right? A massive problem in our country. Thousands and thousands of cases where, where people, victims in their companies or outside would would blow the whistle on, on sexual harassment and nothing nothing happens. And so your first point of what you said, that, that whistleblowers are across our country, are offered no protection, are offered no support, and are often left to languish on their own. Absolutely. But the second part of what you said for me is almost more frightening, is that the massive cost these whistleblowers pay, um, it's not just the alienation and abandonment, loss of income that, that I've suffered but it's actually the, the, the risk of being killed. And they're being killed at a rate, as you say, that's alarming. Um, and I think they get away with it because of just the, the, the endemic nature of corruption in our country. We've got a culture of impunity. We've got a culture of looking the other way. Um, I'm astounded, Chad, at my friends, right? So I'll make it very personal. My friends were CEOs of companies, who are heads of, of civil society organizations, who are senior people in educational institutions, who have turned a blind eye to my plight because of the fear of speaking up. And, and I think that's at the highest level. I imagine you go lower down in organizations. We've created this culture where people are afraid to speak up, but also where we lack the courage to speak up. We're going to carry on this very important conversation with Ethel Williams. Um, 
after we've had a, a break and heard from our advertisers. We're chatting today about the importance of whistleblowing, but the sad and unfortunate fate that can be suffered by whistleblowers, which isn't just death. It's like Ethel just described, alienation and people wanting to distance themselves from those that speak the truth. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're having a very important conversation with Ethel Williams. And before we get to his story and the book that he's written, which is a must read, I want to talk about the culture of whistleblowing in South Africa. Ethel, we, we come from a tortured past where people that spoke out were often regarded as being informers or impimpies. And this culture seems to have manifested itself throughout our democratic dispensation, where people don't like those that speak the truth. Why do we have this culture and what can we do to overcome this travesty? Yeah, I definitely agree that we have that culture. I've certainly experienced that. Um, I, I've had just the ugliest vitriol um, directed at me by people um, claiming that I'm an impimpy, that, um, you know, I deserve to be shot, that uh, for what I've done, that, I, that um, you know, I'm a coward. Um, I've had people say that's not the code of how we do things, etc. So, So that culture definitely prevails, Chad. I, you know, I, I, it's hard to, for me to know exactly why it prevails. I think there's some element of, you know, fake news is everywhere. I think we struggle to know who to trust and, and what to trust. Um, and that's where I've gone to extreme measures to to say everything that I testified at the Zondo Commission and everything I've included in my book, I've got documented evidence behind it so that those who have doubts, which I can understand they would have, um, can look to actual evidence to support that. But I think most of us are quite apathetic, though. Um, I, I don't think there's real effort to get behind the stories. Um, I think we... Because of the wounds we have and the pain we have, I think we go for the simple solution of kind of deciding who's right and who's wrong based on political affiliation or, or racial affiliation or any other affiliation we want. And so we, we sort of, you know, we kind of say, oh, he's of that group, so then he must hold this view. And I've noticed how people have struggled to, to put me in a box. They can't decide if I'm ANC or EFF or, or DA. They can't decide if I'm pro this or pro that based on my evidence, because it, it's the truth that spans everything, right? So um, they want to say, oh, I'm a pro-Ramaphosa guy, but then I criticize Ramaphosa for not supporting whistleblowers. Then they say, oh, I'm a pro-Zuma guy, but I say, no, well, Zuma was involved in state capture. So I think it's this combination of us, of this fake news, but also our, our laziness and our apathy towards what's happening in our country. Um, I, I think we, we, we are so burdened by by violence and crime that we've become fatigued in, in some way. And I, I don't want to be making excuses, but I think we're so fatigued by it, it's become so normalized. And I think that's what we've got to wake up to, is saying the more we ignore it, the more we are desensitized to crime and violence and corruption, the more it's going to continue. Why can't you just be labeled as a patriotic South African? I struggle with that question, Chad. You know, I've literally sat and often in tears trying to understand how it is I land up where I am. How is it that, you know, I've done all the right things. We would say to, to young people, I, I studied hard, um, I, I worked hard, I moved up in my career, um, I saw something wrong in our society, and then said, well, I can't allow that to happen, so I must speak up. Isn't that how we raise our children, how we think a good society should be? 
And having done that, I now find myself um, as a refugee in a foreign country with no legal status. At any minute, I could be kicked out um, without any income, without any prospects. Um, and so what's gone wrong here? And then added to that, Chad, is, is the silence. I'm astounded by the silence in South Africa, right? Only one organization, just one organization, issued a public statement of support of what I'm doing, and that was the Tutu Foundation. Uh, every other company I've worked for, university I've been involved with, NGO I've supported, group of people I've are, are, are backed, have been silent. And this is why I talk about this, this, this apathy and I don't know why people don't see me as an as a patriot. Uh, you should be asking them. But I have seen groups of businesses, uh, you know, look at Business Leadership South Africa, who represent the most powerful businesses in our country. They've embraced Bain. Um, they've said Bain is a good business worthy of being part of our society. But Apple is not. And so... And so I think we've, we've, we've got some perversity in our, in our society where those who seem to be do good, we look at with suspicion. And I don't understand it. It's sadly ironic that the one organization that endorsed you and came out in support of you, the Tutu Foundation, today is the day following the unfortunate passing of this incredible icon, our last Nobel Peace Laureate, um, somebody who, who did so much to garner peace in South Africa and to get people to come out and speak. One looks mm. at the TRC. That was the opportunity for people to speak. And there again, we had people not wanting to speak, people who were ridiculed for speaking. And it's left us with a void because there were no prosecutions following the TRC. And um, it was a decision made by the Mbeki um um, government at that point in time that based on the recommendations they would look at it and we're sitting with a situation now where there is still no justice and we now have to look forward to 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 2022 and when i say look forward i mean looking forward in time not looking forward as in happy to see what's actually going to happen with the findings and the recommendations of the Zondo Commission. Is it going to be a whitewash? Are we going to see something similar to what we saw after the PIC Commission? Is it going to be like the TRC where people were named and implicated, but nothing further came of it? Tell us a little bit about your experience at Zondo. I also worry that we won't see any action following the release of the Zondo Commission's report, based purely, as you say, on on our government's track record. Um, There's been no indication that there's any will to take serious action against those who have committed these heinous crimes. Um, we, you know, we had the Nugent Commission report. That, that's been out three years ago, where the Nugent Commission recommended action against those, for example, who hollowed out SARS. But there's been no action taken. So I hold very little hope that there will be action after the Zonda Commission, not because of the failure of the Zonda Commission. I think it's a failure of our, of our government and, and our, uh, our, our law enforcement um, agencies, who for me, just simply lack the will to want to do anything. Um, and, you know, and, and I, my experience uh, hasn't been a great experience of, of with the Zondo Commission. And that's not a criticism necessarily of, of Judge Zondo. I think he's trying his best to get to the truth. But the Zondo Commission offered me no protection. Um, so when I talk about having no protection, for me, it started with the Zondo Commission of you know, me saying to them, um, that I feel exposed, um, what protection do you offer? And they said straight to me, they offer no protection. They've made an assessment that says I've, I've got no risk, just as the SIU made an assessment that Babita Diokoran's got no risk, right? And we know how that went. Um, 
the, the Zonda Commission offered no legal support. So when I was asked to present all the documents I had about Bain and Bain's involvement with many people across our society um, to, to be involved in state capture, um, I said, I've got no legal expertise. How do I do it? How do I write a 700-page affidavit? How do I organize it? How do I prepare myself for a testimony for two days? And the Zonda Commission says, you're on your own. Um, so there's been little support for me um, before I testified and after I testified. Uh, and this adds to this feeling of you are left on your own as a whistleblower. You're fully exposed. Um, you know, when I talk about exposed, Chad, I'm not just talking physically, right? I mean, there might have been things I wrote in my testimony that will come back to bite me um, if someone tries to sue me, which, which, which you know, seems inevitable. So we, there, are, there are some of us who have said enough is enough. We'll draw the line. We'll act out um, in the interest of our country. Um, but then there are those who could have helped us who stayed silent and remained silent, right? None of the major law firms would help me. Um, one of the law firms I contacted, the biggest law firms in our country, asked me for the list of people I'm implicating. And once they saw the list of the people I'm implicating, they said they couldn't help me. So this is, this is what we're facing. We're facing this web in our society that's spread across our entire society um, where um, those of us who would try to speak up are then, are then pushed out. I mean, UCT, another example, right, where as a business ethics lecturer, I acted upon what I was teaching. I literally acted upon what I was teaching my, my students every day of saying there are times when it, it requires courage to do the right thing in our country. And UCT asked me to leave. And so it's across our entire society where we all have people stand up and make these grand declarations in public. But when it comes to action, there's nothing. Ethel, please could you take me and our listeners behind the scenes into the Zondo Commission? We aren't party to what happens um, except what we see broadcast live on air and what we read in the media the following day. Where do you go to testify? Do you have support from their legal team and from the investigation team? And we've heard about all these um incredibly qualified legal minds and investigation minds that have been seconded or employed by the Zondo Commission who may be joining the investigating directorate once the Zondo Commission is wrapped up to prosecute some of what may have come out at the Zondo Commission. So my question to you is take us behind the scenes and did at any stage commit to an affidavit, not just what you presented, but to something that the ID would be able to use in a criminal prosecution, and were you led to believe that this would, in fact, be used after the commission for pr criminal prosecution? Well, to your last point, Chad, no. Um, I was never led to believe that what, what I presented would lead to any prosecution. In, in fact, there were a number of, of topics that I urged the, the Zonda Commission investigators to follow up on. So, for example, I urged them to, to summons Bain to make available, to make public, um, and to make available to the Zonda Commission the, the, the full reports of the investigation into their work across a public service. Bain didn't just work at SARS, right? Bain did work at Telcom, the DBSA, the IDC, at um, um, the PIC. Uh, they worked with, with, with Zuma on, on the ANC manifesto. They worked across our government and our state institutions, and they've got information that would help us understand how state capture worked at the highest level. 
And as far as I know, the, 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 the commission's investigators never subpoenaed Bain for those documents. So to, to your question about what happens behind the scenes, I, um, I contacted the commission um, in 2019 after I, I publicly blew the whistle. Um, and what I did was I said to them, I've got, I think I've got information that might be useful to the work of the commission. Um, I will make myself available to you if I can be useful. And that was what my email said. Um, when they contacted me, we had an initial interview with, with two investigators, and they just asked me to tell them my story, tell them what I knew, and that's what I then did. Um, that's when they asked me to then um, hand over all these documents that I had. Uh, when I was preparing to hand over all the documents to them, they asked me to, to order the documents in some sort of logical way, which makes sense, right? I had hundreds of documents. And, and by the way, all of these documents I got access to legally from directly from Bain or from their law firm, Baker McKenzie, during my involvement with Bain. It was then when I put together all these documents that a, a picture emerged for me, which I hadn't um, appreciated before, of what Bain's involvement in state capture was. It's when I read these documents that I began to understand how they were linked, how this was a conscious effort of planning with Tom Moyani, of planning with Sipo Maseko, of planning with Jacob Zuma and other cabinet ministers, of how they were going to run the state capture repurposing of our state institutions. And so I submitted all of these documents to the Zonda Commission. Um, Chad, we then had one or two conversations um, on the phone clarifying things I'd sent. But there was no there was no real detailed interrogation or engagement with me around what I had presented until the day I arrived um, on the 23rd of March to, to testify. And this brings forward a, a massive issue for me because there seems to be a disconnect between the public, um, what they believe the Zondo Commission is going to do, and in actual fact what the Zondo Commission is doing. And a reason partly for this disconnect is the fact that we saw the investigating directorate under Hermione and Crenia while she was still there being incapacitated while she was waiting for the Zondo Commission to wrap up because the understanding was she would inherit a, a, a large portion of their legal and investigative personnel. So the thought in the mind of the public is that part of what's happening at Zondo is to prepare for these cases to then be prosecuted um, after being investigated further by the ID, and I think it's this disconnect that's caused such a problem in the public's understanding of these commissions. Well, and look, it might very well be the case, right? That might still be the case. Um, I don't know, but what I do know is that the investigative directorate never contacted me, not once, to clarify something. There was no follow-up. There was no explanation required of me. They never contacted me, not even once. And so... If, if, if the whistleblowers and the witnesses are not being contacted, um, right, it sort of makes me wonder what, what, you know, who they were engaging with. As I said earlier, I don't think they followed up on all of the areas where I guided them to go and conduct further investigations. Um, so, so I, I'm hoping that happens, Chad. But my view is this idea of us waiting for the Zondo report, I think that's a coward's cop-out. And our president is doing it. Um, a lot of organizations are doing this. We are saying, let's wait for the Zonda report. That's a coward's cop-out because there's so much information that we already know that was revealed during the Zondo public hearings upon which we can act. We can act today. And as you said, there's the PIC report. I mentioned the Nugent Commission report. 
There's a lot of information we have. And so I think we're sitting around saying, let's wait for the Zonda report because of our, 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 our lack of will to do something. Because the Zonda report, there'll be just delays and delays on the report. And then the president will spend time applying his mind to it. And it will be 2030 before we start seeing action. I'm saying we should not wait for the report. There's enough for us to go on right now. It's very disconcerting to hear that it's not going to be one report anymore. It's going to be a series of reports. And we now hear that what was going to be released both publicly as well as to the president at the end of this week, um, the president is now asking for at least four months to review the reports he receives before he releases them. This is of grave concern to all of us because we want transparency in our country. South Africa has a serious problem in the manner in which it treats people who are brave enough to put their lives on the risk and come out as whistleblowers. Whistleblowers can save the country a fortune in money. They can also assist in financial restitution, especially for the public purse, which has suffered tremendously the last few decades as a result of what we now term state capture. One of those whistleblowers is Ethel Williams, and he's been chatting, us to, to, chatting to us today about the importance of whistleblowing, the repercussions of whistleblowing, and his experiences as a whistleblower. He's written a book called Deep Collusion, and I'd like to now hand over to him so he can tell us a little bit more about this book and what the process was in writing this book and the emotions he must have gone through. Chad, so the book was intended uh, not to be my sort of personal whistleblower account. It was intended to be a, a document, really, which stemmed from my, my Zonda Commission testimony to make public the information I'd uncovered with Bain's involvement, along with Tom Moyani, Sipa Maseko, Jabu Mabuza, Duman Lovu, Jacob Zuma. So I wrote it in the public interest as a, as a document because I didn't think everyone would want to go and read a 700-page affidavit. But importantly, also what I wanted to do was to was to provide some clarity as best I could on on some of these these aspects which um, you know, I think we struggle with. So, for example, the idea of state capture. Right? We use the word all the time, but but what is state capture? And I and I in the book offer my view based on research I've conducted, based on 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 con, uh, consulting other literature to show the difference between corruption, state capture, and a coup, for example, because this idea of our state being captured as the sense that, oh, you know, that we've had a coup and, and someone's taken over our government, which, of course, is not the case, but they have taken over some aspects of our government, particularly some aspects of, of how our, our government uh, made procurement decisions. And so state capture is a complex element of, of corruption and, and coup. Importantly, it's got this web effect. It's not one person that is doing this and we can take them out. It's they're part of this web. And, and I think that's what becomes difficult in identifying state capture and also in stopping it. But I think also that's what makes it very frightening. Because the moment I went, for example, to UCT, to the council of UCT and said, hey, um, I've, got, I've got concerns that you guys might be involved with state capture companies. Um, and, and when they look at it, they then panic because they realize, yes, they have been part of this web, possibly not even intentionally, but they're part of the web. And then you go to every company all of us work for, and then we realize we're all part of this web. And so as opposed to saying, let's fix this problem, we've been shutting down those who are raising the concern. So in the book, that's exactly what I do. I lay out how I got involved with Bain I had a long history of Bain starting in the 90s where I worked at Bain's global head office in Boston. And then coming up to, to Bain's asking me to come and help them um, as, as an ethics expert and someone who knows their business 
to come and help them do the right thing, I say in quotes, basically to help them, advise them on making amends in South Africa, which was the, the, the basis in which I got involved. And then after three months of being inside Bain, realizing that they were not um, sincere about wanting to make amends. In fact, it was a cover-up. And so then resigning after three months because I would not be part of a cover-up that would harm my country. Um, and so that I walk through that process in the book. But importantly, I make all the revelations. I, I shine a light. I name the people. I name the organizations. I name what Bain and their cronies did so that it's a public record. Because what Bain has done is Bain has issued these blanket statements of denying everything, of discrediting me, of saying I'm a liar. And I keep saying that's fine. You can say I'm a liar all you want. But you have provided documented evidence. Bain has got a lot to answer for um, because they must offer alternative evidence then. And as we know, they refused to provide evidence at the Zondo Commission. Um, they refused to, to challenge my testimony because, Chad, the testimony all came from them. It was their documents. In your opinion... Are we heading for failed state status? And if so, can we reverse it? Chad, I think we as South Africans, every individual citizen needs to make a decision about this country we want to live in. We are way beyond looking at government and looking at the ANC and pointing fingers. We've got to make decisions. So I, for example, look at... You know, every week there's a campaign against corruption or gender-based violence. Every week there's some conference or some webinar. We fool ourselves by thinking that talking about this problem is, is going to solve the problem. We, we fool ourselves in thinking waving placards are going to solve the problem. So we are part of this problem because we engage every day in these things, which I think are just, are just um, veneer to give ourselves the impression of action. We, we are afraid to take the real action. And the real action is to go to our employers, to go to our friends next door, to go to our parents, whoever is involved in these actions, right? So I've named law firms. I've named companies. I've named organizations. They're named. They're there. In my book, the names are there, right? We need to hold these people accountable. We need to go to them and saying, I will not be part of your organization or part of your, 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 your business because of what you're doing. But that's not happening. And so I think that's what we need to do, Chad, right, as individuals to say, I'm going to speak up when I see UCT shutting down a whistleblower um, or, or when I see SAA or PRASA shutting down a whistleblower. So I think we are heading for a real disaster if we as South Africans don't start taking action and stop fooling ourselves by all our campaigning um, but not address the real issues, the real people involved. I think that's a very important place to end our interview today Ethel Williams I admire your bravery I thank you for chronicling this putting it down in writing showing us what is going on letting us read it so that we can understand the difference between fraud state capture a coup and that of corruption something which has become so pervasive in our society thank you Chad Ethel Williams is the author of Deep Collusion which is available at all good bookstores